Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In New York, I'm John Fassman. And in London, I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. No country in the world is home to more refugees than Turkey, which has taken in people from Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, and elsewhere. But as the country's elections draw closer, ambitious politicians are using the displaced as scapegoats. And in the Arab world, girls are doing better than boys in school by a lot. One reason is segregated classes. Another is a cushier job market for men. But governments, to their cost, seem to be doing little to close the gap. First up, though. For more than two years, North Korea claimed to have kept COVID-19 out of the country. No longer. It recorded its first case of the virus on May 8th. Within a week, the official case count had risen to 168 infections and one death. But that leaves out a reported 1.72 million patients with fever symptoms, including 62 deaths as of this week. The desperately poor dictatorship is now in lockdown and almost certainly being ravaged by the highly infectious Omicron variant. State TV has carried advice from doctors telling people to rest and stay hydrated, to keep their mouths clean and rinse them with salt water. Kim Jong-un, the country's leader, reportedly told an emergency meeting of the ruling Workers' Party that the spread of COVID-19 had thrust the country into great turmoil and called for an all-out battle to overcome it. Even for a country accustomed to bad news, this outbreak is disastrous. Andrew Knox is The Economist Korea's correspondent. When the pandemic broke out, North Korea responded by closing itself off from the world. Imports reduced to a trickle, domestic travel restrictions were imposed, international flights stopped completely. So while other countries rushed to vaccinate their people, North Korea gambled that it could ride out the storm. It repeatedly declined offers from China, Russia, and COVAX, a UN-backed global effort to supply shots to poor countries. Why did it take that approach? The leadership was reluctant to let health workers into the country. They were afraid that it might spread the virus or that they might gather information about the dire conditions that they saw inside the closed dictatorship. It might have also been spooked by rumors about the safety of vaccines made by AstraZeneca offered through COVAX. But as far as the isolation itself goes, it wasn't alone in taking that path, right? China and Hong Kong did something similar. Sure, they did. But they did something similar while also doing something different than North Korea. And I mean, even then, it wasn't obviously a sensible way to proceed. There was no guarantee that the virus would evolve to be less dangerous rather than becoming more infectious and harder to manage, which is what actually happened. But what they did different was that China's zero-COVID strategy was designed to buy time while it vaccinated its population. The North Korean leadership instead decided to basically sit on its hands and try and ride out the storm. So as of yet, there are no known people vaccinated in North Korea. Now, the leadership has since this outbreak started, blamed those tasked with keeping the virus out of the country for their, quote, carelessness, laxity, irresponsibility, and incompetence. But the real folly was their own, that they failed to set up a vaccination program with the time that they had bought by closing borders. 
Unfortunately, it's the North Korean people that will suffer the consequences of this decision. Hong Kong's a good case in point here. When Omicron hit um, earlier this year, the vaccination rate among the elderly was still pretty poor. So while in January, its death toll stood at only 205 for the duration of the pandemic, within two months, it had spiked to nearly 8,000. And what do you think the result will be if something like that happens in North Korea? What's the state of the healthcare system there like? It's a little bit hard to model because we have such poor information about the country, but it's been chronically underfunded for years. Uh, Hospitals lack equipment and medical staff. They don't have regular power, clean water, or proper sanitation. They lack testing infrastructure, track and trace systems that other countries have built. And two years of having their borders closed has really depleted their uh, supply of medicine, much of which is imported. On top of all that, there are a number of pre-existing conditions that are very prominent in the North Korean population that make people especially susceptible to COVID-19 and make the disease especially dangerous. Tuberculosis is still a huge problem in the country, as is malnutrition. What do we know about the number of cases? So since they announced that there were actually COVID cases in the country, North Korea hasn't really been giving very robust numbers on how many there are, instead reporting that there have been, at this point, close to 1.5 million cases of fever. Uh, It might be that that's a euphemism designed to disguise the uh, seriousness of the problem, but it's more likely that, in fact, They don't have the testing infrastructure to actually determine definitively that these are COVID-19 cases. And it's possible that they are just using temperature as a proxy for the virus. And so what options does North Korea now have, do you think? Can it get a vaccination program up to speed or is it or is it likely to, to change tack and accept help from others? Well, the chances of them getting a vaccination program up to speed without help are I would have thought basically nil. So they'll have to turn to help from somewhere if they want to immunize their population. The most obvious candidate is China, their longtime patron. But China is dealing with its own COVID problem at the moment, and it's not clear exactly what form assistance would take. South Korea has offered to donate vaccines and other medical supplies, saying that they would do so regardless of circumstances. I imagine it would be a real admission by North Korea of just how serious the situation is if it were to take up the South on its offer. But but if it did accept help from South Korea or from China, what, what difference would that actually make? If North Korea were to accept help, There are signs that it would be able to make good use of vaccines. It's previously organized successful mass vaccination campaigns, most notably against measles in 2007. And there's evidence that it has uh, cold chain distribution infrastructure from previous programs that could be repurposed in order to keep vaccines from spoiling. And if enough doses were administered and fast enough, even considering sort of the lead time necessary for them to become effective, many lives could be saved. But the signs aren't great that they'll make that choice. The vice minister of public health, Kim Hyun-hun, has said that policy is changing from quarantine to treatment. But the state's also producing guidance so that citizens can treat themselves, which include ibuprofen, 
chong sim huan, which is a traditional Korean herbal medicine, and even rinsing one's mouth with salt water, ostensibly as a disinfectant. It's also recommended that citizens consume a diet rich in fresh fruit and vegetables and proteins such as meat and shrimp, which is somewhat unhelpful advice for a country that's experiencing really serious food scarcity and where the price of staples like rice and corn are extremely high at the minute. And so, Andrew, food scarcity aside, this sort of advice, take ibuprofen, rinse your mouth with salt water, could have come out at any time. Do we really believe that North Korea has actually kept COVID out until now, or can there be some immunity in the population already? So given how little information we have, it's very hard to say definitively. It sort of beggars belief that no instance of COVID could have crossed the border, but at the same time, we can't really say. The irony of all this is that North Korea might have been better off had they let COVID in in the first place and let it spread early in the pandemic when the virus was less infectious ideally, while also jabbing people. The best case scenario would be if there had been far more cases in the country than the government had admitted so far, meaning that there's a certain level of immunity in the population. For once, after a a lifetime of duplicity, North Koreans should really hope that the leaders are lying to them this time. All right, Andrew, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks very much for having me, John. For a lot more analysis like this, subscribe to The Economist. To find the best introductory offer wherever you are, just go to economist.com slash intelligence offer. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. For months, Europe has been focused on Ukrainian refugees forced to flee from advancing Russian troops. But in Turkey, a much longer-running refugee crisis is coming to a head. The Syrian war has been going on for 12 years, and in that time, millions have been displaced. Many have ended up in Turkey, a country that now hosts the world's largest refugee population. In August, a Kilian Ankara sparked a wave of xenophobia and violence that swept through the streets of the capital. And now, as presidential and parliamentary elections draw closer, politicians are lining up to scapegoat Turkey's refugees. This is a country of 84 million people, which hosts 3.7 million Syrians and several hundred thousand people from Afghanistan, as well as refugees and migrants from places like Pakistan, Iraq and Iran. Their presence has long been a source of simmering tension. And with parliamentary and presidential elections coming up next year, and with the economy in serious trouble, there are fears that these tensions may soon boil over. 
Piotr Zalewski writes about Turkey for The Economist and has been speaking to refugees in the capital city of Ankara. To have a look at what these tensions feel like, I went to a neighborhood called Altında in Ankara, which was the scene of rioting and, in fact, something approaching a pogrom last year in the aftermath of a killing of a Turkish teenager, allegedly by a group of Syrians. And so what's the atmosphere like on a day-to-day level? The atmosphere last year was obviously quite toxic, and it's still very tense today. There's plenty of police in the area. Locals are very reluctant to talk. The few who agreed at first said that relations were very good, that there were no more problems, but then admitted that, in fact, things were quite tense, and local refugees have also been deeply affected by the political rhetoric coming out of Ankara. Many of them now fear deportation or resettlement to Syria more than ever before. And tell us about that rhetoric. What have politicians been saying? So one of the leading voices in this debate is a far-right politician named Umit Ozda, who has led the charge against Syrian refugees. Last year, he founded his own party and has promised to send all refugees back to Syria. This rhetoric is now becoming dominant across the political mainstream. In fact, all of Turkey's major parties have now made some kind of a pledge to send Syrians back home. Kemal Kilicdaroglu, who is the leader of the largest opposition party, told me in an interview a few months ago that he will seek the voluntary return of Syrian refugees. Erdogan himself, as recently as March, had been defending his policy of hosting the people he calls Turkey's Syrian brothers and sisters but has since walked back that pledge. Şimdi de ülkemizde misafir ettiğimiz 1 milyon Suriyeli kardeşimizin gönüllü geri dönüşünü sağlayacak yeni And in fact just this month he announced a plan to convince 1 million Syrians to go back home and to build 100,000 homes in northern Syria to accommodate them. What's behind all of this resentment, this anti-refugee sentiment? Well, there are social tensions. There have been economic tensions, and especially the latter, I think, are playing a dominant role right now among voters. And this is something that political parties have been capitalizing on for some time. In a country where inflation has topped 70% and unemployment is in double digits, refugees are an easy target. When refugees first came to Turkey, they were seen as taking jobs that no Turks had wanted. But now, with an economic crisis in full swing, the situation has changed. Those jobs are fewer, and there are more Turks lining up to take them. And this also adds to grievances against refugees. So from what you're saying, most political parties have vowed to send refugees back or convince them to go home. Is it likely that they'd return voluntarily or could they be forced out? There were some ambiguous proposals by the government and others to resettle Syrians, but I think those provoked an international outcry. And ever since, Erdogan and company have been saying that all of these returns would be voluntary. Those proposals are considered by experts not only to be unethical, but also unrealistic and against international law. Now, opposition leader Kemal Kilistaroglu says that he will secure guarantees from Syria's president Bashar al-Assad, the dictator from whom the refugees fled, 
to ensure their safety. Obviously, things are not so simple. Analysts see such proposals as a fantasy, and frankly, no refugees would trust any such promise by Bashar al-Assad. Syrians in Turkey are far from well off, but they do have employment opportunities, free healthcare and free education. And it is unlikely that any of them would want to uh, leave this behind and return to a country still torn by war. And refugee protection groups also agree that the prospects for any such mass returns are quite dim. The pledges to send Syrians back home seem to be nothing other than a populist promise. So even if it is just a populist promise, it sounds as though the rhetoric itself is making life hard for refugees. The rhetoric encourages prejudice and violence against refugees. And Altenda, the neighborhood I visited, was one such example. The mobs who attacked Syrian businesses there last year were shouting, and Syrians go home. And the tensions that spilled over into violence in that neighborhood last year are still there. And the government has done some things to try to contain those tensions. A visible police presence in that neighborhood is one way they've dealt with it. Another one is a policy that the Turkish authorities refer to as dilution, which is aimed at limiting the amount of Syrians or foreigners living in one particular neighborhood. And if I recall correctly, the bar has been set at 25% of the population. This is obviously an extremely controversial measure, but it has met with some approval, even among NGO communities who say that it has gone some way to reduce tensions in places like Altinda. So it sounds as though Syrians are feeling, with good reason, increasingly unwelcome in Turkey. Would they consider going elsewhere? For the time being, Syrians in Turkey have been staying put ever since the deal between Turkey and the EU concluded in 2016. This is a deal that has allowed Turkey to take 6 billion euros worth of aid from the EU and to channel that aid to projects aimed at improving the situation of Syrian refugees. If you ask Europeans about the 2016 refugee deal with Turkey, many of them, as well as European analysts, will say the deal has been a success. And practically all Turks would take very strong issue with that. For Turks, this deal has converted their country into something of a depot for refugees. Now, nationalists in Turkey and also even many of Erdogan's own supporters resent the EU for trying to pay its way out of a refugee crisis and shifting the burden onto Turkish shoulders. Meanwhile, many liberals in Turkey and many opponents of Recep Tayyip Erdogan will say, that, in fact, this deal has also allowed Erdogan to get away with a range of democratic abuses, violations of the rule of law, a locking up of dissidents and opposition politicians, and in a way that Europe, in exchange for Turkey's promise to become this depot for Syrian refugees, has turned a blind eye to the abuses of the Erdogan regime. All right, Piotr, thanks so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Around the world, millions of girls are kept away from classrooms. When they are allowed to go to school, poverty, child marriage, and gender-based violence often stand in the way of their education. In one region of the world, though, it's the boys who seem to need some help. 
Across the Arab world, girls are still less likely than boys to be in school, but when they are in the classroom, they are vastly outperforming boys. Elise Burr is a Middle East correspondent for The Economist. Boys doing badly in school has a big drag on the economy, and it could pump out a bunch of insecure young men who think that their livelihoods depend on keeping better educated women out of work. You say uh, that girls are vastly outperforming boys. By how much? By what measure? Oh, they're trouncing them. According to the World Bank, about two-thirds of boys in the Middle East and North Africa aren't able to read a simple story. Compare that with just over half of girls. In some of these countries, in international tests, girls are performing so much better than boys that it looks like the equivalent of them having an extra year of schooling in science and an extra two years of schooling in reading. And why is that then? Why are boys doing so much worse than girls? Well, I spoke to one young Emirati named Mohammed. He told me that he slept through school if he turned up at all. He never thought about his future, and he really just wanted to have fun with his friends. What struck me with Mohammed is that he really blamed himself for this issue, but I think there are deeper structural issues. One reason is segregated schooling. Single-sex schools are really common in the Arab world, especially in the Arab Gulf, where the difference between boys' and girls' scores are the worst. Boys' schools tend to be worse than girls' schools, in part because it's really difficult hiring good male teachers. I talked to one Saudi official who told me that if a girl's school has an opening for a teacher, they'll get 10 applications, but at a boys' school, they'll get three or four. Men in most Arab Gulf countries think that they can get better jobs than teaching ones in the army, civil service, or the police. So most of the male teachers in the Gulf are immigrants from poorer Arab countries who sometimes struggle to win the respect of local pupils, and they're also paid less than teachers who are nationals. So that's the answer then? It's just down to the, the quality of the teaching? Well, a lot of boys don't see the point in doing well in school. They think that they can get a job in the civil service without having good marks. For example, 30% of jobs in Egypt are in the public sector, and in Saudi Arabia in 2014, the share was 68%. Girls, on the other hand, know that getting a good education is one of the few ways to gain independence. And parents are also part of the problem. They tend to encourage boys to go out and play with their friends while girls tend to stay at home and study. Mohammed told me that he had a difficult time waking up for school because he was always out with his friends, whereas his sisters didn't have the freedom to go and gallivant without a family member present. And another thing that might hurt boys in the Middle East is bullying and violence in school. So globally, boys and girls are bullied at about the same rates, but... In the Middle East, boys tend to be bullied more than girls, and when they are bullied, it tends to be more violent. And you say that ultimately this is a, a big drag on economies. What are governments doing about it? Right. Well, very few governments are doing anything at all to help close the gap. For Mohammed, he turned around his grades when he joined a program called Hands-On Learning, which helps get boys engaged with school, in part by focusing on more practical kinds of schoolwork. He told me that he liked being part of a team and working on more concrete projects through this program. Now Mohammed is 20 and completing his military service. He thinks that he can be an army officer or maybe even trained to be a doctor. But programs that focus on boys like hands-on learning are few and far between. One problem is that education as a whole is neglected in the Middle East. And another problem is that focusing on boys in a region where girls face so many obstacles can come off as a little bit unfashionable. Reformers in the Arab world 
prefer to talk up their efforts to improve the lot of women, even when the data show that boys really also need help. Thanks very much for joining us, Elise. Thanks for having me, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.